Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Pause That Thought. I'm your host, Matthew Jung, and in this podcast, we will be delving into the philosophies and concepts present in films, shows, and other media, as well as exploring how they relate to real life and our lifestyles. As a student and philosophy enthusiast, I'm excited to research and learn together with you all. In the future, I'll have professors and experts in philosophy to explain some of the more difficult concepts. But for now, let's get into the film for this episode, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Now, it seems pretty baffling to choose this movie for the very first episode since it is rated PG and seems to be marketed mostly for kids. But great movies are for every audience, as Walt Disney once said, and themes and lessons in those films are more often than not universal. And this particular film does a great job of exploring what could be taken as much darker and more mature topics, which we'll be sure to get into later. Back to the movie at hand. Released relatively recently towards the end of 2022, Puss in Boots' The Last Wish has received critical acclaim and mainstream popularity, even garnering an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Picture. The film opens up with the adventurer and outlaw Puss in Boots holding a party at the town of Del Mar at the mayor's house, and accidentally ends up awakening a sleeping giant when he ends up in a fight with the mayor's guards, which launches a bunch of fireworks. He defeats the giant, who begins attacking the, the, towns the townsfolk, and after he defeats the giant, he begins singing his praises to cheer in townsfolk and ends up carelessly dying when a church bell lands on his head. It's a jarring moment that's emphasized more because of the age range of the audience. Kids' movies rarely have death scenes in which the character actually dies, especially the main character, and even though the nature of those scenes are pretty comical, the fear that Puss gets isn't played off for laughs. It isn't overplayed either, it just sort of lingers in little scenes and is generally just present through small interactions throughout the films that I'll be sure to point out later. Puss in Boots is subsequently awakened by the town doctor, who explains to him that Puss has used up eight of his nine lives, leaving him with only one life left. The flashback of the deaths that Puss gets is pretty telling of his character. He's a charismatic daredevil adventurer without much care for consequences. His deaths feature activities like refusing a spotter in a bench press when he obviously needed one, but claimed with his bravado that he didn't, or jumping down a tower, drunkenly bragging about how cats always land on their feet, and so on. It's hard to tell whether his bravado and his sort of reckless attitude comes from his fact comes from the fact that he has nine lives and so he has lives to burn, or his just general nature and personality. Puss then goes to a cantina to have a drink of milk and mulls over his thoughts over his deaths. A white wolf with a black hood, armed with a pair of sickles, interrupts him, asking for his autograph. And I really love the way the wolf is depicted in this movie. He's got sort of overly eager red eyes that just set you off right from the start. And he's introduced with him whistling in like an ominous tune that sort of just trails off at the end. The whistling is apparently a homage to Harmonica in Once Upon a Time in the West, who always had a forbidding tune play before he appeared. And director Joel Crawford said, and I quote, We wanted a whistle that was not creepy in the beginning, but then, once you meet the wolf and knew what it meant, would not only cause Puss's hair to stand up, but also the audience's hair to stand up on their arms every time they heard it. And I think they did a really good job with that. Back to Puss and the wolf in the cantina. The wolf turns out to be a bounty hunter who seems to know just a little bit too much about Puss's plight, 
making cryptic threats like lives flashing before your eyes, and generally toying around with them when they fight. There is one specific scene in which, as they're fighting, the wolf disarms Puss and makes a cut on his forehead, which starts to bleed. Puss is shocked at the sight of his own blood, and hair starts to rise on his arms, and we can hear his heartbeat racing. Puss leaves his sword behind and runs away, something completely antithetical to his previously established, bold, fearless sort of character. I mean, in the very first scene where he's fighting the giant at Del Mar, his theme song literally says, who is your favorite fearless hero? Obviously, he sort of gains that fear back when confronted with his mortality. And I also want to add, it's very, very rare to see actual blood from characters in animated films, unless it's something like oil from robots or just like a tiny bruise on their face, something like that. And it's very nice to see that even though this film definitely has a comedy part nails down, it takes the important scene seriously. Like putting, like rubbing it off. I mean, like just blowing it off as like strawberry jam or just a little bruise, but just really decrease the impact, I feel, of the scene. Traumatized by the fight with the black-headed wolf, Puss decides to retire, taking the village doctor's advice earlier when he's when he tells Puss that he needs to stop retiring in order to basically conserve his last life. So he retires, burying his items like his boots, his hat, and his cape. He doesn't have his sword anymore because he lost that in his fight with the wolf. And he holds a mock funeral for the legend of Puss in Boots. You can see pretty clearly in this scene that Puss is very much in love with the adventurous spirit and the legacy that he's created. Going into flowery speeches that though played off as a joke still says a lot about his character. And it's something that I think this movie does extremely well using humor and small moments to emphasize and develop characters deeper, instead of falling in the classic pitfall of creating inconsistencies and cheapening the moment that so many action comedy films tend to do. Puss then seeks refuge with the cat lady Mama Luna, who takes care of hundreds of cats in what's basically a cat retirement home, where Puss is renamed and christened as pickles and just sort of decays miserably. He's just sedentary, he's living with hundreds and hundreds of other cats, He's miserable. In Mama Luna's home, Puss meets an extremely cheerful wannabe therapy dog named Perito, whom he befriends. Although it's probably more accurate to say that Perito attempts to befriend Puss rather doggedly after Puss tells him to go away multiple times. The three bears' crime family, consisting of Goldilocks, Mama Bear, Papa Bear, and Baby Bear, arrives at Mama Luna's house to hire Puss to steal a map from the businessman and pastry chef Big Jack Horner that leads to the location of the Wishing Star. However, they are unable to find Puss because he's changed so much while in Mama Luna's care. I mean, he even grows a beard. And after finding his fake grave, they decide to, uh, they decide to try to steal the map by themselves. Puss overhears their plan and decides to use the star to restore his lost lives and escape his impeding death. Puss breaks into Jack Horner's bakery we get a little glimpse of Jack Horner's backstory. When he was young, he used to host shows in which he would perform tricks and poetry, but that just didn't compare to other fairy tale counterparts who had actual magic. So because of that, Jack Horner becomes a collector of sorts where he just sort of collects every magical item and animal um, and just basically becomes incredibly selfish, only thinking about himself. 
So he enters the bakery to steal the map and ends up clashing with the Bear family, Horner, and his ex, Kitty Softpaws, who was featured in the last Puss in Boots movie. Puss escapes from the map, Kitty, and Burrito. But while escaping, he glimpses the hooded wolf again, who emerges in a crowd whistling his trademark tune with coins on top of his eyes this time. And I have to say, this scene was pretty terrifying when I saw it. Nobody seems to be able to see the wolf but Puss. Meanwhile, the map leads him to the dark forest, a pocket dimension that changes its terrain based on the personality of the map's holder. And I found this visually and conceptually very interesting. Perito is a therapy dog who always has a positive outlook on life despite having a pre-traumatic background where his family tried to kill him, ends up with a map that's just very peaceful and doesn't have a lot of uh, danger in it. Kitty Softpaws, who, who sort of has abandonment issues, although it's never said out loud, because Puss abandoned her on the day of their wedding because he felt that his adventuring would interfere if he did end up settling down. Kitty Softpaws, her map has a theme of misery, sorrow, and abandonment. For Puss, it's all about his mortality and danger. Another thing I like about this film is that even in action scenes in the dark forest, Puss is nowhere near as bold as care or carefree as before. He generally seems much less sure of himself and always somewhat in a state of fear, which is completely a reversal of what he was depicted in the opening where he fights a giant of Delmar. In that scene, he's laughing, he's taking a drink, he's smiling. Later, when he fights Jack Horner in the dark forest, he's got like a scared expression on his face, he's yelping. And even Kitty seems to notice that something's wrong because she's laughing as she spins around and fighting, uh, fighting their opponents and asks Puss what's wrong, which Puss just sort of ignores. Racing with Horner and the Bear family, Puss ends up accidentally trapping himself in a crystalline cave. Embodiments of Puss's previous lives show up in the form of crystals where they mock him for not abandoning Kitty and, Kitty and Perito right away as he probably would have done in the past, just as he abandoned Kitty Softball on the day of their wedding, to get back to his adventuring and get his lives back. They call him a weak coward and that he needs to think of himself first. The wolf shows up in this cave, and this time reveals his true identity as a personification of death, as he destroys the crystals in which the previous lives were stored in. He declares Puss unworthy of life for not valuing any of his previous lives and chases him as Puss runs away. Puss escapes with the map to the star in a fit of panic, ignoring Kitty and Perito who are right behind him calling out to him the whole time. Puss ends up having a panic attack while running away, seeing the wolf in every corner. And while Perito comforts him, he ends up sort of calming down in what's basically a very, very well done scene. Uh, the director claimed that he wanted to portray sort of like a more realistic, grounded approach to panic attacks because he because he knew that a lot of people suffered from that in real life. And I think this was really well done. Um, basically, what happens is Puss, the Perito lies down in front of Puss while his heartbeat is just racing and he's breathing really hard. And Puss just puts a hand on Perito and we can just see his breathing calm down and his heartbeat slow down and it's a very well done scene it's not overdone in your face it just sort of happens and this is something that as i've said before this movie does a really great job of all right moving on to the movie the movie plot 
The Bears, on the other hand, the Goldlocks reveals that her wishes to be reunited with their biological family instead of the Bears. The Bears agree to help her despite feeling somewhat betrayed as they thought Goldilocks was a part of their family, their new sort of found family, so to speak. But they do agree to help her anyways. A fight ensues for the map at the location of the Wishing Star, in which Goldilocks abandons the map to save Baby, therefore re-solidifying their bond as a new found family in which Goldilocks realizes that her wish has been accomplished all this time. And I thought that even though the bears didn't have much of a didn't have that much screen time compared to the other characters, I thought this little theme of found family was very well done in the short amount of time that they had. Again, it's very subtle. Not, nothing in this movie is shoved in your face. All right, going back to the wishing star. Jack Horner becomes trapped inside his bottom, uh, magic bottomless bag in which he stores all of his magical items, which takes him out of the picture for a short while. Death comes to the wishing star and challenges Puss to a final one-on-one -on -one fight, throwing him the sword that Puss lost in the cantina. Even though Puss has a scroll of the wishing star in his hand, because he has learned the value of life and of companionship during his time with his friends, Puss forgoes wishing for more lives and throws away the scroll, accepting death's challenge. This culminates in a fierce duel in which Puss manages to overpower and disarm death. Puss tells him that he will never stop fighting for his final life, even though he knows that he can never truly defeat death. Death spares him because of that, saying that Puss is no longer the arrogant legend who believed himself immortal and promises to meet him again the day he dies. Jack Horner, meanwhile, breaks out of his magic bottomless bag and seizes the map, attempting to make his wish to take all of the world's magic for himself. However, his companions and however, Puss's companions and Goldilocks rip the map to shreds, which causes the star to collapse within himself and consume Jack Horner. In the aftermath, Puss rekindles his romance with Kitty, and the trio, combined with Perito, sail off to the kingdom of far, far away. So the main force, the main driving force that I mentioned before, that sort of pushes the film onward is the fear of death and how Puss is confronted with the reality of his own mortality. And it's one that's been pictured throughout tons and tons of books, arts, and films before. Like examples include things like Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, in which those that seek to hold on to the Grail, which grants immortality, perish. In that movie, immortality is seen as a, as a burden rather than a blessing. And those that abandon it end up being rewarded. Or in the case of Gulliver's Travels, the protagonist of that book meets a race of Strudbergs, which are people born with a mark on their forehead that allows them to live forever. Gulliver thinks that they must be joyful and accomplished because of their immortality, but then he ends up learning that the Strudbergs never stop aging even though they are immortal, which makes them uh, decrepit and insane. Um, and everybody else in the kingdom shuns them. Or the case of Lord Tennyson's poem, Tithonus, where the, where the narrator is an immortal that is aware of his psychological and physical decay and just generally just talks about the loneliness and the state that he's in. There's also the story of the Greek prophetess Sybil who asked Apollo for eternal life. 
She was granted it, but was not granted eternal youth, which seems to be a common theme present in through all these books. She ends up wasting away in a cage, only able to speak because of her physical state. When the town youth asks asks Sybil, what do you want? She replies, I want to die. So immortality, more often than not, um, comes to the theme of there being a fate worse than death. There are many philosophers who believe that the whole concept of mortality for humans will be miserable in any shape or form, including whether on heaven or earth. Some philosophers include people like Bernard Williams, who argues that human lives are based and are valued because of categorical desires that we seek to accomplish. Categorical desires, however, according to Williams, is something that's finite and exhaustible. If given immortality, then we'll be able to accomplish these category desires in the time that we're given and still have much more time left over, which would either end up with us being bored of life because we no longer can accomplish the desires that we want to, or we would end up seeking new new desires that we actually don't have the same interest in. Now, one reply to this is that some categorical desires are not exhaustible, such as Puss's wish for adventure. No matter how many lives that he's given, no matter how many time that he has, Puss can always find new adventures to go into, which kind of counteracts Williams's argument. There is, however, another philosopher named Sam Schleffer, Samuel Schleffler at New York University, who suggests that the problem with the concept of mortality is that it doesn't make sense as a coherent, rational desire. Schreffler points out, and his argument is very similar, although not quite the same as Williams. He points out that human life is structured, the desires that we hold are structured by the fact that we have a fixed time limit. It's a very, very similar argument to Williams. However, Schleffer argues that because of those values that we hold, in that specific time period, that's what sort of makes us human. However, if if we no longer have a fixed time limit, then those values no longer have as value as those those values that we hold no longer hold as much importance to us before because of the fact that we are immortal. So his case is that immortality would make us miserable, which is basically the same argument as Williams. However, he adds on to say that we would cease to be human in some way or shape or form because we are so far removed from the people that we were before that we achieved immortality in this hypothetical situation. So because of that, immortality as a concept just doesn't make sense as a rational desire because we would would never be satisfied. However, Puss in Boots in this movie takes a different sort of approach to the concept of immortality and death. For Puss, immortality is a way of latching on to the adventure and abandoning other people like his friends and his ex-lover, Kitty Softpaws. He just wants to add on to his fame. He's very much in love with himself. That's sort of what immortality represents to him, his chance to continue living as he did without much care for the consequences because he can live forever or in this case he has nine lives however letting go of that accepting death and his friends and his fear 
which will allow them to beat the wolf in the end. Which leads into the argument that contract shuffers, that immortality is a desire to, uh, that immortality is a desire that just doesn't make sense logically. For plus, immortality, or in this case, beating the wolf came from a desire to choose when he's ready to go. Because he's learned the value of life throughout the movie, and he holds his final life as important, Puss accepts, Puss accepts that when he turns down immortality, but he acknowledges that he will see death again. So in this scenario, he doesn't want to die, obviously. <laughs> That's obvious. But the point is, he's not turning down immortality because he's accepting death as in the fact that he doesn't care whether he's going to die or not. He wants to seek immortality in the sense that he wants to be able to choose that when, choose when he dies which is why he tells him that he'll never stop fighting for this final life, and that being the reason that death lets him go. In the end, death is a force that can't be driven away, which is actually referenced in the very beginning of the movie when the wolf tells Puss in the cantina that everybody thinks they'll be the one to defeat him, but nobody has succeeded so far. All in all, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish was a movie I really enjoyed, and it harbored some interesting thoughts and philosophies on the nature of immortality and death. That's all for today's episode of Pause That Thought. Thank you for listening, and join us next time for another exploration into the philosophical themes in popular media.